we go live in three, two, one, roll the footage. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Severino, your host. I wanted to have this guest because of his amazing TED Talk, his wonderful book, which goes so deep on the issues that we care about, the trustless society. And before we get there, how can we, how can we manage trust and build trust? I couldn't know that the day he comes in is after two nights of many of us not sleeping because of fraudsters people that we we gave our money to so i am i'm double happy uh, to have our guest here our guest is the co-founder and managing partner at navaland he has worked in more than 25 countries on four continents his ted uh, talks have millions of views his newest book uh, to be honest is an amazing research but also a very practical book on how to build trust and how to be the person that you want to trust in the first place so that other people can trust you. Welcome, everybody. Ron Carucci. Simon, how are you? It's good to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's so timely that you are here. The last two nights, the community was panicking. We were questioning our judgment. How can we... I say we as a collective sent $80 billion to the new Bernie Madoff. The only difference is he goes as a low key crypto bro. So yeah, we can trust him. What is going on? Uh, what a heartbreak. I mean, as if the world didn't have enough of these stories and if, as if the world hadn't learned enough lessons from scam artists. Um, but the reality is, you know, we as a world have so confused charm, confidence, charisma, you know, good breeding um, for trustworthiness. And probably those should have been the very, and, and he was 25 when he started this and now he's 30. And, you know, did, did he know the whole time? Was it his plan the whole time? Were those people around him in on it the whole time? Or do they get duped too? Those are all the questions that these scandals, the ripple effect, it's like a tsunami, right? It really is a tsunami. We're already in a trust recession. And now you've just added a trust tsunami to it by everybody now having to second guess everything they know about trust, um, about their investments, uh, about who, 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 who can we trust? Uh, and I, I think we're looking at all the wrong signals, right? We confuse charisma, charm, um, uh, you know, a, 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 an overtly uh, straightforward career, in his case, in finance. And these to us become signals because we want to trust, right? It's, it's, I mean, I won't go political on us, but we can look at one of our political parties and look at how the same thing happened to them because we want to believe in the person we're putting our trust in. Um, confirmation bias is a terrible, terrible disease that our brains catch once we've decided. And in this case, after I wrote the check, right now, I'm so emotionally invested in having to believe I did the right thing that the only data my brain will collect, the only data my brain will be able to see are signals that tell me I did the right thing. And any signals that might tell me otherwise, my brain is now conditioned to reject. Um, and that's how this works. And it's, it's, it's tragic that so many people's fortunes 
Um, I mean, Bernie Madoff won that long ago. It wasn't like we have amnesia about it. Uh, but here we are again with the world, right, going into uh, an already difficult holiday season. Now with a lot of people, you know, panicking and worried about their futures. On the good side, uh, a whole generation, and I was born 1980, so I'm part of that generation, millennials, who have basically low trust or no trust in institutions, low trust or no trust in in traditional uh, ways of contracting. Mm -hmm. And so we are on a track anyways to to find new ways uh, to maybe without trust right you know we we would love a software that does stuff mathematically where we don't even have to you know dig if we can trust somebody or not but we are not there right now we are here what can we do as a human being as a leader to to be more in the trust zone than in other zones well i so you know we we did a 15 year longitudinal study on more than 3200 leaders to and studied them to understand can you predict trustworthiness? Can you, are there signals you can see that would tell you whether or not someone is gonna be honest with you? And we define honesty as truth, justice, and purpose. They're gonna tell you the truth, do the right thing, and do it for the right reason. Uh, say the right thing, do the right thing, and do the right thing for the right reason. So uh, it's no longer enough in a, in a trust recession like this to simply not be a liar. Although in Sam's case, he, was, he couldn't even meet that bar. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so here, here are the four things that we all can do. First of all, be who you say you are. We all profess values. We all profess a set of principles that we live by. Um, our organizations have posters all over the wall with values and missions and purpose statements. What turns out those words matter. The things we say about ourselves matter. People, we hand them yardsticks and say to them, measure me by these words. And we have to look to see if the actions and words match. Because often there are say-do gaps. And when there are say-do gaps, if the person causing them isn't taking responsibility for them, if the words um, are just cosmetic, you know, you've now told people duplicity is okay. Right? It's okay around here to say one thing and do another. And that's not okay. And so you have to really scrutinize the people you want to trust and you have to scrutinize yourself. Do you know that, you, that in the eyes of others, your actions and words match. When I ask leaders very often, do your people trust you? I get a very incredulous response of like, well, sure, why wouldn't they? Which is, which is you know, very telling in and of itself. But when I ask them, well, why should they? I get a litany of intentions. You know, well, I'm a good guy, I'm a good woman. I, I have their backs, I advocate for them. I, I'm, straight, I'm straightforward with them. And what that's telling me is you mean to do all those things. And so you're asking people to trust you based on your intentions. Well, that's not how it works, right? We don't trust other people based on their intentions. We shouldn't. Uh, and we shouldn't expect other people to do it for us. So be who you say you are. The second one is, um, how do you account for the work around you? Do you are, tr are dignity and fairness part of how you adjudicate the world around you? Um, when you evaluate somebody's work, when you evaluate your friends, are you looking through the lens of merit, uh, merit uh, of fairness? Are, do you treat them with dignity? Do you talk about their work in a way that is um, just? Uh, are there privileged people around you that get more of your attention than others? Uh, do you do you judge people's work and uh, how do you handle their failures? 
if you want to pe people to trust you, people have to know that you're a safe place to fail. They have to know that you understand that their work, their contribution is an extension of them. No longer in our world um, do we have uh, pe people's work that's repetitive. I mean, how many cases did you close? How many files did you process? How many t-shirts did you print today? Our remit is as personal as we are. It's my analysis. It's my creativity. It's my ideas. It's my um, radical thinking. Uh, so when you talk about my work, you are talking about me. You can't say it's not personal. Do you do you know that? Because it, because if you don't, um, you're four times more likely to have me be dishonest with you. Because now, if you're not a safe place for me to, to talk about my work or the way you treat my work with dignity, I have to embellish my accomplishments and I have to hide my mistakes. The third one, um, how do you make choices? Can people deconstruct your decision-making methodology? If I walk into a room with you and there's other people in the room and there's a decision being made and I look around that table, can I trust that the information coming from the person in front of the room has no agenda, that the, the data the ideas being exchanged are freely different, um, that there's a balanced view on the conversation. And if I wanted to bring a point of view different than the one in the room, I would be welcome to do that. Or when I walk into that room, is it orchestrated theater? Is the person in the front of the room clearly wanting me to think a certain way, leaving certain pieces of data out? Are all the heads nodding in the room to a, to a beat that they all know to, to nod to? And the last thing I think you want to hear from me is a point of view that differs from yours. Uh, now, if that's the case, you're three and a half times more likely to have me, me lie to you because there's no transparency in the room. I have to, if I want the truth, I have to go find it somewhere else. And then lastly uh, is uh, how do you treat people in uh, other parts of the world from you or other departments? How are your, who are your rivals? How much have you fractured your organization? You know, we all see border wars marketing and sales, supply chain and operations. Those border wars have meaning. And when those seams are not stitched well, you have fragmentation, you are six times more likely to have people be dishonest because now you have dueling truths. And if you and I have dueling truths, I have one goal, to be right and to make you wrong. Uh, but if those seams can be stitched, if we're all part of a bigger story and there's no we and they, but there's just a bigger we, now you're six times more likely to have people be honest with you. Uh, and so, and the, the, the crazy thing about those, the statistical models, Simon, is that they're cumulative. So if you do all four of those things well, you're 16 times more likely to have people trust you. But if you suck at all four of those things, you are 16 times more likely to be uh, another Sam Bankman free uh, and be on, the, on, on a headline story in Financial Times you never wanted to be in. Mm. You went really deep in your research for the book. What surprised you? What did you find that surprised you? It was the last one. It was the cross-functional, you know, how do I treat people who are different, who don't see the world the way I do? That that, 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 that multiplier was six. That, 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 and, and in a world today, right, it sort of goes back to our early chat, where we're nothing but echo chambers, where we have algorithms feeding us information that we want to hear and never presenting anything that differs from what I want to hear. Um, we're fractured. We live in a fractured world and we show up that way. So we show up, not curious about how you might think, but with an impulse to refute, reject, and convert. Make you wrong, um, tell you why you're wrong and make you think like me. Without any conversation, dialogue, civility, 
Uh, and so that factor is a is a uh, is weaponized today, right? And so we're we're causing dishonesty simply by having people hunker down, right? And then you on top of that you add the horrific work of the media and their fake news and there are you know no standards of integrity for them anymore. Uh, you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer uh, in 2022, and media is the least trusted institution in the world. Uh, you know more than government, which is that that's a pretty incredible accomplishment to be less trusted than government. So, um, but, but, but all those factors are in control. They're all hiding in plain sight in our organization. Um, and that's the Petri, those are the Petri dishes in which uh, SBFs are growing. Uh, and they're, they're, they're spotable. If you just look at where there are, say, do gaps that you're thinking, oh, well, he had a bad day where there are accountability rifts, where people are being mistreated or people are being bullied or people are being demeaned or people's work, don't, they don't feel proud. Where decision-making is not transparent, where there's people sort of bending information and where there are border wars, where there are tensions that are not resolved. You can see those four things and you have to know where you see those, that's smoke. And it's just a matter of time before that fungus grows into something worse. So we are echo chambers and it's easy for us to, to just subscribe to the YouTube channels, the newspapers that are aligned with us. Yep. And, and actually, so a friend of mine once told me, yeah, you know, Simon, now in addition to Stephen Colbert every day, I'm now also watching Fox News. And I was like, Fox News, you're kidding me. I could, I couldn't do that even for research purposes. And he goes, well, but if you don't do that, you are you are in a bubble. Yep, and he's like, absolutely right. right. He's so right. So, do we need one of the to best, intentionally one of the, one expose the, us to the other? To the one other of the best stories. Side? One of the best stories in my book is uh, so the book is the book of heroes. I wanted to interview people who are doing this right. I didn't want to tell the SBF stories. We have plenty of those. So this is a book of the opposite. These are the people who are living these principles every day and how they lead their companies and how they lead their organizations, how how they lead their countries. Uh, Riaz Patel is a, a Pakistani immigrant. He's Muslim, he's a TV producer, and he's gay. Everywhere in his life, he's other. There's, right, there's no place he can go where these are my people. And uh, in the 2016 election, um, he realized the only thing he was hearing was information that he that agreed with him. And he knew it wasn't his doing. He knew he was being fed that information. So he and his husband, and there at that time one child, got on a plane from New York and flew to Ketchikan, Alaska, where he knew there would be nobody who thought like him. Walked into town, just walked around the town, went into a diner and sat down and started talking and said things like, so I have a feeling you think I'm a terrorist, am I wrong? They had never seen a Pakistani Muslim gay man. He said he was, he was incredibly hospitably welcomed that they got along really well, that they understood each other's differences and they had very spirited but friendly debates. He said he made new friends. And he said when he left, he said, I understand why they voted Republican. Given the regulations and, and how money and the fishing industry flows and, and some of the things Clinton did to that industry years ago, he, he said, if I lived there, I'd vote that way too. But I never would have heard that point of view in New York. 
He then um, hosted, a, he, he started a, a wonderful TV show on YouTube called Four Chairs, where he brings together people like a black policeman, an NRA advocate, a mother against gun violence, right? And makes them talk about guns. He brings together people from very different points of view and makes them have conversations. And the, and the four of them together have these brilliant, difficult, but very civil exchanges of information where you suddenly start to realize, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I never realized that. I hadn't heard that before. And suddenly, it's not that you're changing your mind about your point of view, which isn't, shouldn't be the goal. But suddenly, you're now seeing the world through a very different lens, and all the biases and judgments and beliefs that you had about that point of view don't hold water anymore. But we do not put ourselves in those, in those pathways. Um, and, and we have um, technology that's working very hard to prevent us from doing that. Wow. And, and people listening here, this is 16 times the difference what we are discussing. It's, it's just maybe a small behavioral change, yep. uh, one word that we use in a meeting, but it's 16 times impact. So I want to ask you a personal thing about a trust problem that I have with a friend of mine and how to deal mm -hmm. with that. And then I also want to ask you how we as a leader in teams can learn from the heroes that you just yeah. um, interviewed after one word from our sponsors. What if your business would run well even when you are on vacation? Discover how 1,600 business owners have regained their freedom using the Strategy Sprint's blueprints. How they enjoy living their dream and watching their business scale. Get the exact checklists they use to go from stressed to fulfilled using the Strategy Sprint's method. Order your copy of Strategy Sprint's 12 Ways to Accelerate Growth for an Agile Business on Amazon today. And if you love it, leave us a review. For more information, head over to strategiesprints.com. So one of my best friends did something where I lost, lost trust. And we had a very difficult conversation. And I started with, this is what I observe. This is what I need. It's hard for me to trust you moving forward. And... And he says, okay, Simon, but that's unfair. How can I show you that I am trustworthy? And I said, I know, I, I, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm literally just, okay, let's wait for months. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Is it just, okay, I don't know. Do you have an idea? So uh, let me ask a few questions. You don't have to disclose things you don't want to disclose. But I'm, first of all, I'm sorry that happened to you because it's very painful. And when it's a close relationship, it's more painful. Um, did, is what he, did he know what he was doing was going to hurt you? Was it deceptive? Was he trying to hide something from you? Or was it something that he really hadn't realized was going to be so impacting on you? I guess he would, he, he did not think about it. Um, so that's important to know because, um, we all want to attribute motive, right? Like we all think SBF was out to get us all. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a set of sin of ignorance versus a sin of deception. The question you have to ask yourself, isn't one about trust, Simon, it's one about forgiveness. Mm. And what, what does it take for someone to earn your forgiveness and forgiveness? And they're different things, right? Forgiving somebody doesn't mean you restore trust with them. Mm. Um, but what I think would be good for both of you to do would be for you to sit down. You obviously had a bunch of assumptions about him that tells you that's something he would never do. 
And so I, I want you to write, write those assumptions down. These are the things I thought that suddenly got violated with his action. He should write down all of the assumptions he had about you that made him think something like that was no big deal. Right? Because, I, because, because if he thought for a minute that he was going to violate you and your trust, so I have to believe he would have done it. So obviously he was operating, you both were operating under very different sets of assumptions about one another um, that didn't match. And then suddenly one moment drew bright spotlights on that. And exchange those and have a conversation about what those assumptions were. And you're going to hear, at first you're going to hear, how could you have thought that about me? Don't you know me? How, you you really thought me? That's what you're going to hear. And and it's not uncommon. Are you, are you guys in business together or just good buddies? Friends. Yeah. How long have you known each other? 10 years. Mm, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, very often, um, fr- friendships between men presume levels of intimacy that really aren't there. So as men, and you know, this is very true, of especially white men, ironically, we have a lot of control over the belongings of other people because of our presence in the world, but we very rarely take responsibility for our own need for belonging and usually feel like we don't. And so our hunger for intimacy is much, much deeper than our control over it for other people. And we don't know what to do with that hunger because we, we've been taught that manhood means look strong, look smart, don't look vulnerable, all the things, right? And so here's a place where you th- you're experiencing a much deeper level of intimacy than you're actually expressing with a whole bunch of assumptions in there where one action can suddenly draw, draw into the spotlight some contradictions. And so the first thing I think that both of you need to do is to examine what was it you believed about one another and the relationship that you had, you both experienced something in such polarizing different ways. Um, did you sense that when he learned how hurt you were, he was remorseful? Cognitively, yes. My emotion wasn't flowing with Wait. it, though. Sure. Yeah. So, do you, so was he was his remorse like genuinely sincere, even how he expressed it, or was it like a what's the big deal? Like, was he dismissive of your pain? It felt dismissive. So he needs to hear that from you. That you know, you you don't seem to understand the weight of what I felt. That maybe because he's still in that sense. For I would have never imagined this to be that big a deal. You know, and so, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this is not something like he slept with your girlfriend. <laughs> so, um, so there's, there's, you know, there's obviously in his mind, gray areas about what he did that there are not gray areas for you. Right. So there's value systems that were violated. There's um, needs, relationship needs. You have. There's a whole bunch of stuff he had no idea he was trampling on. Mm. Most likely because if you had done the same thing, he wouldn't have cared. Right, because they're not. He doesn't have the same level or the same standards of the same belief structures that you do. So there's a there's a values conflict there, right? Which is not bad. You don't have to agree on the same things, but he clearly lacked a lot of information about you that you assumed he had. Wow, that's powerful. Yes, thank you. And can we expand that to the teams, mm-hmm. whatever role it is? Right, we are in a team meeting. What are things that you learned from from the the practical heroes that you found that they do the right way and that that we can learn from? 
Yeah. So one thing is um, sort of following your example, they're vulnerable, right? They're mm -hmm. willing to admit that they're hurting. They're willing to admit they don't know something. They're willing to admit when they did something wrong. Uh, and they're willing to be very curious and empathic. They have no need to be um, on a pedestal. They have no need to be right all the time. They're not looking to be the answer ATM, the way most leaders have been trained to be. <clears throat> and they care deeply about the work the people they lead and the impact they have on others. They spend a lot of time making sure that their impact and their intentions are, you know, there's, it's a, it's a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I wanted to write the book about the people I wanted to have as my boss, the people who I wanted to follow, the people I'd be proud to emulate, uh, and, and across all of their amazing stories, what you see are people who are who they say they are, don't have, they're not pretentious. Um, anytime you're in their presence, you just feel like you're the most important person in the world. And it's genuine. Like they're curious about you. They treat you with respect, no matter how big, rich, famous they are. Uh, when they're looking you in the eye, uh, you know, you matter. Um, when you're, when they're making choices, when you're in a conversation with them, you, you sense that there's no agenda. Um, and they can treat people who are different than them with incredible regard. I think, I think all of us wake up, Simon, every morning with two questions on our mind. Do I matter and do I belong? And we look for places where the answer to that question is unquestionably yes. And when we doubt that the, question, the answer to the question is yes, we, we, we adopt the counterfeit questions. How do I look like I matter? And how do I look like I belong? And for these leaders, when you're in their presence, you never doubt that the answer to either of those questions is yes. One thing that in our community people are expressing is, so I'm having hiring interviews and people are asking me, hey, how safe is everything here? How much revenue can you guarantee that we have? How much liquidity? And at the same time, I, I want to give them, you know, safety. I, uh, But I also, if I'm honest, I have to say, I don't know. I'm just here to do my best and I can show you the mechanisms in yep. place to ensure that we all do our best. But actually, I don't know. And, and it's this, you know, how can we give a safe place and hold space while still having all this uncertainty? Right. And so I think what, when somebody's asking that question, I think they're asking two questions. Um, one is, are you safe? And one is, is this, is this venture safe? Right. And I would pull us apart. What you can say to them is, what I can promise you is that I'm safe, but I cannot tell you that there's no risk in this venture because I'd be lying to you, but you have to know that I'm bearing the risk with you. But when it comes to your contribution here, when it comes to, how you show up here when it comes to how, who I am to you, that you can hold me accountable to being safe. And when, the minute you think I'm not, I want you to tell me. But there's two different mm. parts of safety there. And one you can control and one you, one you have influence over, one you can control. What can we do to be safe for other people, to create a space where they can actually be as they are? Um, first of all, tell them that's what you want. Let people know that, 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 you're, that, that you, that's what you hope to do. Um, ask questions. Constantly say, 
Mm, who, so well, here's my idea. Tell me where I'm wrong. I have one client uh, I talk about in the book. She, she says all the time after she expresses an idea, okay, where am I smoking crack? You know, uh, and she, she means it. She wants to, so she invites pushback. Um, she's vulnerable. They're, they're vulnerable. Like say, here's, I don't know this, or here's where I'm, here's where I'm struggling. Here's an area in my life where I'm, I'm, I need your, I need your help. Um, you know, don't, don't suffer from chronic certainty. Don't feel like you have to know things. Ne you know, never give people reassurances. You have no right to give them. Uh, those are the places where you make it safe to be human. So there is another way of creating safe spaces. It's not by <laughs> chronic certainty. It's not by um, holding up something that we actually can't hold. We can hold safety by being vulnerable and admitting that we don't know. But where where does the safety come from? Do we need to show you know the the governance that makes sure that everybody mm -hmm. does their best? Well, I think I think so. You know, th then you have to look into your accountability systems, right? How is work measured? Um, is it safe for me to fail? How do you treat mistakes? Um, how, how are decisions made? And are, is it clear what what decision rights I have and what decision rights I don't? Um, I don't think you have to. Often leaders confuse empowerment with accommodation, right? People don't have to have a say in everything, and nor should they. And I don't think they expect to. But if you tell them to have a say in something that they actually don't, or you expect them to have a say in something you didn't tell them you expected, that's when things get become unsafe, when there are surprises. But clarity uh, is one of the things that brings a greatest degree of safety. Um, safety doesn't mean easy, and safety doesn't mean without risk. It's not, safety is not coddling. It's not like a, you know, a safe space. That's not what safety means. Safety is hard, right? There, that's where you can have conflict and know that we can walk away colleagues. That's where you can hear hard feedback and know that it's safe to be imperfect. That's where you can give hard feedback and know that, that we be in a retribution for it. It's not easy to create safety. It's not comfortable. Safety doesn't mean comfortable. Um, in fact, I think those are the opposites. <laughs> Um, but it just simply means that however I show up, I can be successful and contribute. Why do you collect door knockers and skeleton keys? <laughs> so, uh, I'm not sure. Are we gonna, is this going to be on video or is it going to be? Yeah, it's just video. Yeah. Well, there they are. Um, and so, you know, th those doors, knobs, and those keys are, some of them are hundreds of years old. And uh, they're, they're from all over the world. They're beautiful. Um, but when I think about the millions of hands that have touched those doors and opened them or unlocked doors, uh, it's a wonderful way for me to begin my day reminded that life is about opening doors for others. Life's about making sure that there's a pathway for others to be successful. There are 8 billion doors in the world through which love and hope and joy can enter the world. And every one of us is one of them. Wow. There are 8 billion doors in the world. Never thought about it like that. It's beautiful. And so that reminds you. Um, how do you open door in, in what you do? I spend a lot of time mentoring younger professionals. Um, I, spend a, I, spend a, I spend a tremendous amount of time working on social justice issues. So for, where, where, people, where, where the playing field's not level for others, especially uh, racial justice where people who look like me 
um, unintentionally or otherwise, have made it difficult for people who don't look like me to be successful. So I spent a lot of my time working with other men to try and level that playing field um, for people who are equally as talented, as knowledgeable, as passionate, as potential, but don't have the same doors open for them that they should. And so I spent a lot of time doing what I can to open those doors. Where can people find you? Uh, so a couple of places. Um, my firm is navalent.com, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. You'll find um, some great videos there. You'll find a bunch of eBooks you can download if you want to be a better leader, a better team member. You can find some wonderful videos and blogs and all kinds of great content there. If you want to learn more about the book and the heroes that I interviewed, come to tobehonest.net. Um, we, we videoed all the interviews that I did, or most of them, and I knew I wouldn't be able to use all the great stories, so we made a TV series. So it was a TV series, a, a news magazine show called Moments of Truth. And you can binge watch all 15 episodes of the TV show at the website. Or you can find it out if you're on Roku, you can find it on Roku. Um, uh, and get to hear some of the firsthand, some of the incredible things that I heard from leaders that will inspire you. Thank you so much, Ron. And can you share one, one example of those 15 um, videos? Hubert um, Jolie was the CEO of Best Buy for nine years, uh, where he took the co company from the brink of bankruptcy to an incredibly thriving organization. And he did it completely opposite of what conventional wisdom would have said. You know, the, the consultants would have said, cut costs, close doors, whatever, shrink it. And he knew that, you know, because, you know, players like online retailers like Amazon were eating their lunch. But he went into every, into the stores, listened to the people on the floor, realized that they, he was not activating a sense of purpose. And then he, the, all the human magic, as he calls it, was not being readily unleashed. And so he activated a sense of purpose in them. He activated a sense of mission in every employee, heard their stories, empowered them to make decisions they weren't empowered to make, simplified the very complex levels of KPIs and operations they had a, under which they were working, um, and uh, unleashed the human magic that was there. The stock price went from like $11 to over 100 uh, in the time he was there. Um, and employee engagement, turnover, all the metrics you'd care about were dramatically impacted because he cared so deeply. Uh, it's a wonderful story. Mm. Wow. Thank you, Ron, for being here. Ron Carucci, everybody. The book is called To Be Honest. You can find the videos at tobehonest.net. Thank you, Ron, for sharing your journey, your wisdom with us. And uh, Simon, a pleasure. Thanks man. for having me. Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses. Go grab them at strategiesprints.com. What if your business would run well even when you are on vacation? Discover how 1,600 business owners have regained their freedom using the Strategy Sprints blueprints. How they enjoy living their dream and watching their business scale. Get the exact checklists they use to go from stressed to fulfilled using the Strategy Sprints method. Order your copy of Strategy Sprints 12 Ways to Accelerate Growth for an Agile Business on Amazon today. And if you love it,